The days are coming when I will fulfill the promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. It's officially Advent, which means it's unofficially Christmas. The next month will be all about Christmas. And obviously, this Christmas holds tremendous promise given the experience of Christmas 2020. Hopefully, more people are more comfortable with holiday gatherings and family parties, perhaps even travel. But at the same time, of course, we still live with great uncertainty when it comes to everything from new variants to vaccine boosters, from mask mandates to supply chains dis disruptions. There, there's just a lot of unknowns out there. Whatever your plans or approach to this Christmas, this Christmas, like every Christmas, holds promise. I hope that the season will bring good things into our homes and our hearts. So for this season of Advent, we're going to be looking at the promise of Christmas. When we speak of something or someone as having promise, we believe there's good grounds for great expectations, substantial indication of future success, reliable reason to look ahead to what's advantageous. A promise creates a sense of anticipation for the future. It fills us with hope for the future, and we need hope if we're to live with any sense of joy or meaning or purpose. A promise is especially powerful when it comes to our relationships. We draw closer to people who keep their promises, who fulfill their end of the deal, who deliver as advertised. When people fail to keep their promises, it hurts our hearts and damages, even destroys relationships. There are people and organizations you have nothing to do with anymore because they broke a promise. On the other hand, there are people in places to whom you're fiercely loyal, specifically, perhaps solely, because they kept their promises to you, even when it was inconvenient, even when it was difficult to do. When someone makes a promise to you, the level of hope and expectation it creates depends. It depends on who makes the promise. You may not have thought about it in this way before, but your level of expectation and anticipation is based on two factors. Two factors regarding the person or organization making the promise. The first factor is always going to be character. The mental, the ethical makeup of an individual. If you don't trust the character of the person or the organization making the promise, the promise is worthless. 
At this time of year, advertising and marketing make all kinds of promises to us. And we have to discern among all those messages which ones are real and which ones are just selling stuff. Well, I suppose they're all selling stuff, but we have to discern who we're going to trust. It's a question of character. The second factor is going to be about competency. To believe someone can keep a promise, we have to believe their ability to deliver. The more competent, the more resourced, the better position they are, the more confidence we can have in their promise. For instance, if the Ravens make it to the Super Bowl, and perhaps I should say when the Ravens make it to the Super Bowl, and I promise you tickets, you should have absolutely zero confidence in that promise because I have absolutely zero ability to deliver. However, if the promise comes to you from Steve Bashotti, then you can start packing your bags. You can have confidence in that promise. Did you know God is a God of promises? It's true. God is a God of promises. God can be trusted when he makes a promise. We can absolutely trust his character and his competence. And did you realize that throughout the Bible, God makes hundreds of promises? Some of those promises were conditional, meaning that in order for God to fulfill the promise, some condition had to be met, some behavior had to be demonstrated. If Abraham agreed to serve only the living Lord God, then his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. It was a conditional promise. Some of those promises were directed to an individual. God promised Jacob's son, Joseph, that he would be great and powerful. Some of those promises were for the whole nation. God promised Israel that they would inherit the land and they would become strong among the nations. All kinds of promises. We could do a whole series just to look at the various promises God makes in Scripture. But that's not what this series is about. Here's what we're going to do instead. While some of God's promises were specific and nuanced and conditional, there was one promise. There was one promise God made over and over again. And it is, in fact, the promise of the Hebrew Scriptures. It is the promise of Christmas. And it was, of course, the promise of the Messiah, a Savior. Over thousands of years, to thousands of people, God promised a savior. And because of this overarching promise, the people of Israel lived in a state of anticipation. For all their faults and failures, despite the chaos and calamity of their history, they lived in a state of anticipation. God made this promise over and over and over again. And each time he did, he added clues. Clues on who the Savior would be, where he would be, how he would be. In Genesis, after Adam and Eve messed up, 
God first made the promise to right the wrong by sending a savior born of a woman. Clue number one. Later, he told Isaiah this woman would be a virgin. Clue number two. The prophet Micah announced God's promise that the Savior's birth would take place in Bethlehem. Another clue, just to name a few of the clues God gave. Jesus' birth was predicted and promised over the centuries in myriad ways by all the prophets and patriarchs of Hebrew scripture. And so, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at just some of those scripture verses. Verses that point to the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of all God's promises in a single promise. And what that can mean for us this Christmas. As we launch this series, I invite you to consider who you can invite to join us here on Ridgely Road or online for any or all of our weekends this Advent and, of course, Christmas. Who do you know who needs to hear a message of gratitude, a message of hope, a message of promise this Christmas? Well, we'll begin today by briefly looking at a promise made through one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in a very difficult time and was called by God to deliver a very difficult message. His message was essentially that things had gotten so bad in Jerusalem, God was going to allow her enemies to overtake and totally destroy the city, send the people into exile, and effectively bring the nation to an end. That was a terrible judgment, but for years, God had tried to get Israel to repent of the sinful practices they had developed. Practices that in some cases were not just sinful, they were savage, especially harmful to children and oppressive to the poor. Jeremiah had the unenviable job of telling the leaders of Jerusalem that they should accept God's punishment as a way of repenting for their sin and reforming and renewing the nation. Nobody wanted to hear it, especially the king. And eventually, Jeremiah was imprisoned to silence him. You know, sometimes a situation can be so dysfunctional that if you name the problem, you become the problem. You're the problem. And that's what happened to Jeremiah. But to be fair, while he preached a damning message of impending gloom and doom, Jeremiah's message was also one of hope. He said in one place, the days are coming. In the book of Jeremiah, that phrase, the days are coming, which he uses repeatedly, is always a reference to the promised Messiah to the coming of the promised Messiah. It's a very hopeful phrase, especially when it precedes good news, as it does here. Jeremiah goes on to say, I will raise up for David a shoot. What does that mean? What's that about? Well, this is one of those clues that we talked about. Jeremiah tells us 
that the Savior will be of the family of the house of the lineage of King David, Israel's greatest king. In his time, God had made exactly that promise to King David. But everybody knew if the Babylonians did, in fact, destroy Jerusalem, they'd abolish the monarchy, and that would be the end of the promise David had been given. That's why Jeremiah says that the Savior King to come will be a shoot, a branch of David's lineage. It's not like the clean, direct lineage that you can see in the crown, for instance. Elizabeth inherits the crown from her father, George, and will leave it in turn to her son, Charles. It's a straight line or lineage. Jeremiah is anticipating something different, a bit of a jagged kind of lineage. And the point is, it doesn't look like there's any hope for the monarchy at this point in their history, but he's telling them there is. The promised Messiah will reestablish the kingdom. He will come to rule the people and restore their fortunes, and that's not all. Jeremiah goes on. He will do what is right and just in the land. You might say, big deal. What else should he do? But consider the context. The people of Jerusalem had known profound, pervasive corruption in their leaders for generations. In contrast, Jeremiah promises a king who will be guided not by self-interest, but by integrity and goodness, pursuing what is right and just. Jeremiah concludes, in those days, Judah will be safe, Jerusalem will be secure. The promise of safety and security was exactly what they didn't have, what they most needed. Given the very real existential threat Israel was facing at the time, those promises were profoundly important. Anyway, bottom line, Jeremiah is looking forward to a time when everything will be impacted and influenced by the coming Savior. Everything. The promise of Christmas is the promise of a savior, a savior who really can save us from sin and selfishness and selfish choices, who really can strengthen us to govern our lives by what is right and just, who really can provide safety and security in the most basic way of all by putting us in right relationship with God and righting our relationships with one another. A savior who really can impact and influence everything in our experience. But to experience that impact and influence, we've gotta be paying attention. We've gotta be listening, we've gotta be cooperating, we've gotta be making an investment on a daily basis. Today we're handing out an Advent devotional as our Advent gift to you. Tom and I wrote it, so we know you're gonna love it. Actually, just kidding, but I hope you like it. I think you will. These are three-minute exercises, one for each day of the Advent and Christmas season. Each day includes a scripture verse, a brief reflection, and a prayer prompt. So if you don't have a prayer plan for this season, this can be your plan. 
And if you've already got a plan, this can be a little something extra special for the season. If you're joining us online, you actually can't buy them anywhere anymore because they're sold out. It's true, they're sold out. That sounds impressive, but it's not really. Given the seasonal nature of this piece, our publisher only printed a limited run and they're sold out. You can't buy it. But we do have a digital version, also our gift to you, and you can find it at churchnativity.com slash devotional. Check it out and we'll get it to you. Three minutes a day, a simple, specific place to start making an investment this season. In today's gospel, uh, uh, Jesus makes a promise to us. He makes a promise to us, a promise that might well shape our attitude for the month ahead. We just heard it. He promised, the Son of Man will come in a cloud with power and great glory. When these signs begin to happen, stand erect and raise your head because your redemption is at hand. That's the promise. We don't just look to and hope for out in some dim and distant future to come. That's a promise we can live our lives in. We can live our lives in anticipation of the good and great things that God can do. And that's, that's, a, that's a great way to live.